Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Energy Awareness Radio. You know, being in the presence of a loved one who is transitioning is heart-wrenching. Many times, the person's end-of-life words can be construed as somewhat eerie, nonsensical, doesn't make sense, but they are significant. The words of the dying can provide some of the most salient clues as to how we can best live our lives while we are here on Earth. This is your host, T. Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am the founder and CEO of the Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing the basic necessities of life to underprivileged children. I'm also a reconnective healing practitioner, certified vibrational sound therapist, and positive psychology and energy psychology practitioner at Quantum Wellness Center, my private practice, located in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. My guest, Lisa Smart, is a linguist, educator, and poet. She founded the Final Words Project, an ongoing study devoted to collecting and interpreting the mysterious language at the end of lives. She co-facilitates workshops about language and consciousness with Raymond Moody at universities, hospices, and conferences. And Lisa is the author of our topic for discussion, Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you for taking time to join us here at Energy Awareness Radio. How are you being? (laughs) I'm great. I love your introduction and all the things that you're engaged in in your life. It's very inspiring. Ah, Well, your book is very inspiring. And, and, you know, it's so insightful, enlightening, and I'm going to use a word that no one would ever think to put with a book such as this, but it is uplifting, which I know some Mm -hmm. people think is odd given the subject matter, but I feel you're providing solace to so many who would otherwise Mm -hmm. walk through the days following a death and and even years wondering what someone who was transitioning was trying to say, what they meant. And the fact that your book allows for translation, I guess, it brings (laughs) comfort to the living, peace that they were able to gain you know, some sense of closure rather than an emptiness that perhaps they didn't provide something to a loved one in their final days. So having said all of that, and it's a fascinating read, I have to say that. And I think anyone could resonate with it because there's just so much to resonate with. And most people probably have had, who are going to read this book, have had an instance where they would have been in a position to understand what it is that you're saying. But What was it that brought you to actually write this book? Um, What brought me to write the book, you know, it's interesting. You used the word uplifting. And seven, you know, seven Mm -hmm. years ago, before my father died, I would have never thought that I would write, do this research, and also would have never thought that I would have written the book feeling a sense of, um, well, that, that possibly there is something beyond the threshold and that this research could be as uplifting as it has been. Um, what happened is, uh, uh, let's see, it was now five years ago, my father, who um, I, was, I was very close to him, and he was an extremely bright man, Ph.D., psychologist, rational, rational, rational materialist. Uh, he, and if I used the word angel in any way, he would roll his eyes. <laughs> and he was just someone who was, you know, completely... Um, just a complete skeptic. And in the last three weeks, as he had entered the the dying process, 
I noticed a few things. One is he began speaking about angels, which I, I blew me away because he had never done such a thing um, while he was alive. And also I was trained in linguistics, and I um, love language and very curious always about language. And I noticed there were very remarkable changes in his language in those last three weeks of life. So um, in those those last days with my father, I wrote down everything he said. And at the time, I had no idea that this would become uh, the research project that it became. But as I saw this mysterious language unfold before me, I knew I had to know more. It's truly fascinating because... I, I don't know, the whole thing, when, as, as you're reading through the book, you can relate, I could relate to a lot. And I found that, you know, uh, there's a lot of, uh, oh, similarity between what everybody is saying and, and how they live their life. So the, the correlation between what they were involved in or engaged in work that they did when they were fully engaged in life and now that they're transiting, their language speaks to that in the way that they're transitioning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. You know what? As a linguist, you know, I was trained to look for universal, or not universal, but patterns and certain universals in language. So if I hear something that seems unique in a language that I don't know very well, the first question I was trained to ask is, is this a pattern? Does this show up in this language? Right? Is this something common? So the first thing I noticed and um, about my father's language, and this has been written about also by Maggie Callanan and Patricia Kelly in their wonderful book, Final Gifts, but I noticed um, there were metaphors. He started speaking uh, about a big art show that was coming and that he had to carry these boxes to the art show. Well, there was no art show, however, for... 57 years when, while he was married to my mother, who was an artist, he spent many days helping carrying boxes to art shows. And so that, that mystified me. And what I came to find out uh, as I did the research is that there often is some kind of announcement of some kind of big event coming. And the big event often has to do with the events um, of the person's life. So for my father, he was talking about this big art show that was coming, and he was headed to this gallery, and indeed that was a metaphor. We didn't know at the time because um, this was three work- weeks before he died, and he died relatively unexpectedly. But he, had, he was announcing, as many people do, that this big event is coming and, and that's death. And some people talk about the big golf tournament or the big dinner or the big dance. And oftentimes it's an event or metaphors that are closely associated with their life. And you'll hear things, for example, Jeffrey Holder was a dancer and choreographer. And the very last thing words he said were, um, arms two, three, turn two, three, swing two, three, down two, three. So the very words that were meaningful throughout his life became uh, the very words that sort of signaled uh, maybe for him the last dance. That, in that, I found that very interesting, and I just thought it makes sense because you would speak about what you know. You yeah. speak to what you know. So it, it completely makes sense, even though maybe it doesn't to other people until they think about it later and realize. And I think people do do that. They realize, oh, you know, they said this, and now it makes sense. You know, it takes a while. 
and most of the, the final words in the book are positive. Most of the research that you did were positive. But there, there are some cases that you noted where there is anguish or, or fear. Do you have any theories as to why that is? Well, I think just superficially the design of my research, this was not a formal research study, so I invited people to share their transcripts. And I think in the cases where people had more painful or difficult stories to share, it was just harder to do that, right? Who wants to, um, you know, share a painful story? So I think in some ways um, it might be a reflection of my research design that people wanted to share their positive stories. However, when I spoke to hospice nurses about this and asked them, as I noticed that my data was so heavily slanted towards really positive accounts, many people told me that what happens, it's almost as if, we're programmed to to find surrenderance and peace as we're dying. I heard from many professionals that there is this, you know, people start to have dreams and and uh, find ways to reconcile with people and 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 speak about things and process things in a way that help people, most people or many, uh, find peace in their final final days. And one of the things that happens is people begin to see deceased loved ones show up at their bedside. You know, they have visitors, um, you know, spouses who have passed on before them or children or so forth. And it gives uh, people tremendous comfort. And there was a research study um, that was just completed in 2014, I believe, by uh, Dr. Christopher Kerr and his team at the Center for Hospice, let me make sure this right, Center for Hospice and Palliative Care. And they had 500 people they studied, and over 70 of them either had dreams or visions of loved ones coming to their bedside and and taking them, you know, kind of guiding them through the dying process. And oftentimes when that turning point happened, when people had a visitor in the room or began to see beautiful um, lights or, or landscapes that people often describe, then there was much more peace for the person who is dying and, of course, for their family members. So it does seem that somehow, um, I mean, I keep using, I mean, I used the word program before, but it's almost like we're wired to have these kinds of experiences um, right as we cross the threshold or perhaps they are actually going on. <laughs> perhaps we are actually entering another dimension with the dying and with the dead. Yes. And I, well, I I'm a big believer in mediums. I've received messages oh, from great. mediums that that are, you know, I, I could say, yeah, that's absolutely true. And in my work, I've received messages from spirit that I've mm-hmm. had to relay to my clients or patients upon completing mm-hmm. their energy therapy session. Now, there have been times, even when when I'm just in a receptive enough state, you know, while I'm performing a mundane task. I remember once hemming a dress and and I started asking questions you can't stop the filter. You know, you're just talking and the people in the room knew exactly who I was talking about. Yeah, they passed over. What are you talking about? You know, um, I was asking, is it, who is Rob? What is the, did he like to dance? He wants to dance with you at your Mm -hmm. granddaughter's wedding. I mean, it was just really, it was crazy, but, and then the woman says, Oh, you're a medium. And I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) Sometimes I just get stuff, but I'm not hanging out a shingle, you know, Um, because I can't do it when I want to. It just, it just happens. And it's when you're receptive. So I firmly, I, I, I firmly believe that we're here to learn and grow. And I also believe we go somewhere way better than earth when we depart. So I don't have any difficulty in believing in, you know, near death experiences or anything else like that. I also know that, 
I'm a volunteer for pediatric hospice. That's oh, difficult, my. but wow. it's, um, it's wow. interesting. It's difficult. It's interesting. People are like, oh, I couldn't do it. And like, yeah, actually you could. But children are very aware of their impending transition. They, yeah. they want the truth. They want someone to tell them they believe them. But I haven't noticed any nonsensical language. Maybe that's because they're children, and I cut them slack for that because they're just kids. But I do remember one girl. Her name was Emma, and she was four. And it was two weeks before Christmas, and she asked me to read Twas the Night Before Christmas to her. Wow. And I did, and she said, I'm going to ride in Santa's sleigh, you know. And I said, I do. How lucky are you? And I know that sounds crazy, but I firmly (laughs) believe she did. She died in my arms about 10 minutes after I finished reading the book. And I really, I, I just don't care what anyone thinks. You can't tell me that she was not in the arms of St. Nicholas writing in Santa's sleigh. You you just can't. I've, I know I've digressed here. I'm sorry, but in reading your book, I saw the correlation of, of the traveling. And my question and there really yeah. is one here, <laughs> is has there been any, uh, it's mostly adults that are in your book, any research done with, with children of hospice? And it, because they seem to accept it a lot more easily than adults. And they no, don't speak, like you said, nonsensically. It's so interesting you should say that. And that what a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing sharing that story with um, with us. But, um it's fascinating when people have asked me about the differences, and I did indeed have, stu- have um, accounts of children's final words. What surprised me when, is that they are so down to earth. You would think that kids would be need more comfort or, or somehow, right, because they're younger and we think of them as more vulnerable. And actually, first, children seem to be much more connected and comfortable with the unseen world or what we think of as the unseen world. So... Um, and we all know this because we talk about kids with their great imaginations, and yet there is something very real, right? They're very connected to something. So, for example, one story I loved um, comes from uh, a mother, and she explained um, she was she, her partner is also a woman, and her story was soon after Joanne's passing, mm-hmm. my daughter pointed to the bedroom ceiling and said, Mommy, look, look at all the birds. The next mm-hmm. night... My daughter, and her daughter uh, was a toddler at the time, slept with me. And then in the middle of the night, there was a big thud as she fell onto the floor. This was very unusual and woke me up with a start. I asked her what happened, and she told me, I saw Gijo on a ladder going up, and she was on the top. And I wanted to go with her, but she said, no, no, honey, you have to go back down. So that's a case where a child witnessed, was witnessing the unseen world when her own mother passed. And the reason I gave that as an example is the kids who were passing also seem to have this very, just like the story you told about the sleigh, the kids really mm-hmm. seem to see these things with such detail and with such comfort. And the stories I've had of children who are passing, as well as those who are witnessing at bedside, have offered so much comfort to the adults in their lives because if kids talk about it often with such a sense of groundedness and directness. One young girl had talked about leave me baby clothes for when I go to heaven. And that was so powerful. So when I go to heaven and I have my baby, I'm going to need baby clothes to bring with me. And it's like, wow. And the, the children so often just blows me away have you know, have very clear direction and speak 
in, in, in ways to their parents that are seem way beyond their years often. So um, It makes yeah, sense very, to me. It makes complete mm-hmm. sense to me because they're so close to source. They haven't been uh, put out there to wipe every, the slate clean and be program, reprogrammed by what we know. They're still close to source, and they're still, you know, they're young, they're children. So they're going to know from where they came a whole lot, heck of a lot better than we do because we lose it over time because we're told it's foolish. Of course, that can't be real. And I believe it is very real. I believe yeah. that we're just energy, and the energy you know, it just shifts. It just changes. You can't get rid of it. It just changes. It transforms. That's all energy does. If you had special glasses and put them on, this planet is extremely crowded because everybody's still here in some form or another. And um, so, and when you see, you know, it, it's not, it's very difficult to lose a child, of course. It's very difficult to see that oh, part of it. But when yeah. you're talking to the kids before they're, before they transition, they're pretty cognizant. They're pretty I mean, cognizant. Yeah. They're not, Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it is. Yes, I'm sorry. No, I don't mean to. No, but I very much agree with you. And I think that when I look at the language of kids versus adults, the language is almost less veiled than the adults. Like you have to sort of. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I know I agree with you so much. And when you mentioned the thing about the crowdedness, one of the things that you see in the research, and I saw in my research, and and I've seen in others, such as David Kessler, who's written about. Um, nearing death uh, experience, people often refer to how crowded rooms are. They talk about the crowded mm-hmm. rooms, that there are lots of people. So you are, uh, you know, you are very much validated by, you know, in terms of what people say at bedside and what they see. And, you know, it's yeah. because, you know, you, you sound like you have a very strong sense that this is so. And for me, I'm more on the fence. Yeah someone and which is fine i'm totally open to it and and yet the more i have worked with this material the clearer to me it is that there is definitely two dimensions you know we were just speaking about children a second ago and one of the things that um one older man as he was dying said looking at his toddler i think it was a great grandchild but he said oh how is it he is in both worlds at once talking about the little one talking about the toddler mm-hmm. and the older ones. So there's that sense that at both sides, um, you know, there's, we are closer to essence. And one of the researchers I spoke to did research into children and found that, you know, we know that parents and children often have almost a telepathic kind of communication. And because, mm-hmm. kids, you know, early on kids don't speak, they cry and scream. And what's amazing is parents seem to really know exactly what kids need or oftentimes at least with good parenting and there is definitely uh, a telepathic connection this gentleman uh, dr jeffrey lay did research and they were really able to document the kinds of telepathic and energetic connections parents and children have so and and to you know and that that seems very closely connected to this idea of source and um and it seems we return to that you know we return to nonsense and gibberish and and more nonverbal ways of communicating as as we leave. So, you know, I entered into this work not not a believer, for lack of a better word, and the research has really convinced me that there is at least, at least if nothing else, there's some other kind of dimension, right? Some other something. I believe it wholeheartedly. I got into my work 
a complete skeptic and said, well, I need to study this and find out, you know, how, you know, what what is it, is it really going to work? So I studied quantum physics. And I have to tell you, if anybody out there doesn't, doesn't believe or is a skeptic, all you have to do is study quantum physics and you will see that we are all connected. Energy is connected. We're all connected by the energy. You know, when you do something to you, you do it to somebody else. When you hurt somebody else, you're hurting yourself. It all, what goes around comes around. It, It is very, there's a positive and there's a negative and it affects everything. If we understood how powerful our thoughts were, we would never have another, another negative thought because it affects everyone on the planet. So when you see this in in the world of of quantum physics, you kind of get it and you realize, yeah, energy cannot die. Energy can only transform. And that's what we do. So I am a huge believer. and, And profound things that have happened at, at deathbeds at, you know, yeah. when I'm working on people, um, you know, some of the things are, are very, very interesting. I had a, a client who had stomach cancer. She was in remission. She was doing great. And then the next thing you knew, it came back and we thought she'd beat it. We really did. You know, everything was good. And then one day I worked on her and she sat up on the table and she said, who were the people in the, in the corner? They were dressed in costumes. Oh, and that was the woman I knew she's not going to make it. And she died like four months later. And I knew in that oh. moment, in that very moment, I thought she's not going to make it. I knew wow. it. I knew it. I knew it. There was nothing that could <laughs> be done. You know, I mean, yeah. you just knew because she was already started on the path to transition and it's, this is another horrible thing to say, but when you go to hospice, there are times I've been there and we walk out of the room, me and the nurses and the doctor has told the people six months and the nurse and I look at each other and go, I don't know, I'm guessing seven days. How about you? And they'll say like nine wow. and we're, we're yeah. right. And the doctor's wrong. And it's like, you know, we don't know what planet they're on, but they are not right here. <laughs> you can almost, you can almost pinpoint it. It's scary. And I think any hospice nurse will tell you that anybody who yeah. does a lot of hospice work will tell you they can, you can almost place bets on it. So it's, and it's good that you can, yeah. because you can help the family more, much more. Yeah. But I found it very interesting when you talked about prisoners who are sentenced to death, they have very similar last words. And those were not necessarily the anguished and fearful. They, too, had positive words, and I would think that they would be more apt to be afraid and resistant, but that's not the case, is it? No, and that research study interested me also. This took place actually in Germany, and they did what's called a textual analysis. They took all these final words and then looked at, you know, they ranked them in terms of positive and negative, and they were much more positive, and I think part of it, there, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. One is, you know how if you take a trip somewhere, and I really think, I've come to think, people use the metaphor of the journey a lot as they're dying. There are mm-hmm. a lot of references to travel, just like you mentioned, the sleigh with the young girl, and we hear it with adults all the time. There's so much reference to the big trip or needing a passport and so forth. But if you think about it, um, you know, life itself is like a journey, and I just got back from a long uh, road trip across the country with my 22-year-old, and it was, you know, it was, we had a couple really tough moments, you know. <laughs> that was a hard <laughs> trip. And yet looking back, what we remember are the high points. What, looking back, we see what an incredible journey it was. There was something about looking back at the trip and the journey. Somehow you, you, you see what was beautiful and what was right about it and what you learned from it. And when near-death survivors return, a lot of them talk about the life review at, that happens um, in, the, in the afterlife, the other dimension. And 
oftentimes, you know, they look back at their lives at the very important circumstances, and yes, people are directed to those things they've done to hurt other people, but they also often see kind of the the beautiful gestalt of their life and also feel love, and love over and over again is what people report, no matter what their religious belief is, no matter who they are, most people come back from these near-death experiences talking about the importance of love. And I think, you know, as people on the threshold, you know, what do they say, um, you know, what is that great quote about, you know, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to think about all all the times you wish you were in your office working. (laughs) You're going to think about, you know, did you really love deeply? And what we see in final words is that, you know, people suddenly see the beauty in those they love and also see the importance of those relationships. And uh, one story that really represented that to me is um, there's something called terminal lucidity that happens very frequently, that someone can be completely unresponsive, even in a coma, and maybe for months. In one case, someone just told me a story about his wife was in a coma for a couple of years, and then can emerge and speak lucidly. And um, in this one case, this person was just uh, unresponsive for a couple days because he was approaching death, and he came out of it, was really lucid, asked for a beer, and then looked at his daughter-in-law, who he had always teased. She was a little chubby, and, you know, she wasn't Barbie, right, you know, in his mind, and, and he always made fun of her not being as attractive as the other daughter-in-law and kind of mean-spirited, made fun of her. Mm. And, he, and, um, and she always felt hurt by it, of course. And then here he was in this lucid moment, you know, because he hadn't spoken for days and been almost completely unresponsive. And he looked at her and he said, you know, I never noticed how pretty you were. I'm so sorry. And in just that one moment, you know, years of hurt just seemed to be resolved, right? And in those windows of lucidity, the final words I've received from people, I don't have one example of people saying mean things, <laughs> you know, mean-spirited right. things. They're always positive. And so, you know, that example of the prisoners or, um, and in all my final word research, it just, you know, there are exceptions, of course, but generally people really are seeking reconciliation and resolution, and people seem to value love and, and life. Yeah. Well, and that reminds me of the story that uh, uh, Bella McKenzie, she was a school teacher yeah. that her father's uh, premonition about dying, and he cut a deal with God to come back for 15 years. And he got yeah. it, and then he died in his 15th, you know, on the 15th year. I mean, that, that's a cool thing to do, except, you, you know, I don't know that I'd be wanting to check off the calendar every time. No, no, oh, I got 14 <laughs> years. 12, you know, I don't think I could do that. But he, he changed. He changed significantly because he cut a deal, and he had to come back. And, you know, his plea was, you're going to get more years, but you really have to be spiritual and loving and in all these years that you're going to get. And he agreed to do it, and he did it. Yes, yes. This that, gentleman was, that was is, very cool. Yes, it is very cool. And, you know, this woman told me, first of all, this woman um, is someone who's very conservative. You know, she's not a woo-woo type person, very grounded. And she hadn't told many people this story. And what you know, also has surprised me in doing this research is just how much, well, how many people feel 
so embarrassed about these spiritual experiences that to me are actually so, as you, I love the word uplifting, yet so many people still feel kind of embarrassed about it. And she had told very few people, and I just thought it was a remar- you know, really remarkable story, that he had a near-death experience, and he really bargained with the divine and said, you know, give me 15 more years. I really want to raise my family. And basically what he got telepathically, which is how people get re- information in the afterlife, they hear it heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind. But the message was be more spiritual, be more kind, and really love your family. And he was a tremendous father. And when that September came around, which was the anniversary um, you know, it was a sad time for everyone, but he had to go, and that was the yeah. the agreement. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me in doing this research is I've had so many examples, too, of as people are dying, they may speak to someone who's unseen, right, the unseen, and say, oh, okay, that's right, we agreed on so many years. Or, oh, yes, yes, okay, you know, I don't want to go, but I understand it's my time. And it, it, you know, I've heard over the years, you know, it's your time, all right, you know, when your time's up. But to see very examples, as I did in the transcripts, of how many people um, have this kind of experience of, of, of acknowledging that that it's time, and there seems to be some kind of predeterminate number of years, or at least some, you know, timing to our to our death. Yeah, I think we come in with a number. We don't know what it is, but as it nears, yes. it gets really near, we do know because, you know, people will uh, put their houses in order, you know, and yes. sometimes after people pass, you can look back and see that the person who's passed had been putting their house in order for maybe months. They left notes, yes. instructions. They know they'd be leaving soon. I remember my grandmother did that, and if I think about it, my dad did that as well because he – they, he and my mom purchased a house four years before he passed that included a fireplace and a dining room that she always, always wanted. And I see a similarity between that, final actions, if you will, and your research of final words. Wow, oh, that's beautiful. That would be a really lovely thing to research also and look at. Because, you know, I, there's one story in the book about this m- mother who came out of a comatose state and had also had Alzheimer's for years, you know, very unintelligible, made no sense, was very confusing to the son. And, but here she was in this window of lucidity right before she died to tell the son uh, where all the files were um, in her study so that he could settle the account, you know, the, settle the estate more easily. And just something like that, that someone would uh, come out after not being lucid and be able to communicate that she had organized the files years ago and that she knew exactly where they were. So I did see uh, those, that examples of something like that in the, in the research. But I think you're absolutely right that people also do take actions that maybe aren't ever really verbalized in the same way. And, and you know, it's maybe not necessarily spoken about, but people do the things. I look at my father even um, about four months before he died. He was on a vacation with my mother, and someone said, Morty, write something on your hand and tell us something about you. And he wrote down visitor. And he said, I'm just a visitor on this planet. And it almost mm. seemed like a premonition. And, and you know, I'm trying to think, as you gave your example, if my father had taken any real action before he passed to, to really situate her. And I can't think of any examples of that, but definitely there were, there were the language revealed a few things. 
there was one story of a of a teenage girl, and this was a, a tragic story, um, I think. But she left. Uh, one day she was on her way to go see her boyfriend, drive over to see him. But right mm. before she left, she left um, with those magnetic poetry letters, you know, on the refrigerator, um, this short poem that says, Come spend infinite time away. And she left that on the refrigerator at home and then got into the car and um, and got in a car accident was gone, you know, and died and, and passed on. Yep. And her mother looked at that and just couldn't help feel but there was some premonition in her daughter. And, and what was that? I don't know. You know, that's the mystery. Right. And yet the daughter probably did know. Now, you did talk a moment ago about Alzheimer's. There's also research on the language of Alzheimer's and the parallels with end-of-life language, correct? Yes, there are. And, and I'm one of the things I'm most interested in doing in the next year or two is really to go even deeper in looking at that. But there are parallels. Um, there's an author named Maggie Lecturel in the United Kingdom who did something similar to what I did with my father. She wrote down everything her mother said in the course of having Alzheimer's. And she found also highly symbolic language, you know, reference to the unseen, um, metaphors of traveling. There were very similar, similar patterns, so there are differences. And one of the other similar things is something we call non-referential language, which is uh, words like this, or it. So, for example, my dad said, this is very interesting. I've never done this before. He said that a few days before dying to his secretary. And so what is the this? You know, what is that this? And this and it and reference to things that's not clear what the referent is is also Mm -hmm. fairly common on an Alzheimer's. But I've been working with someone in Pennsylvania who works with residents um, uh, who are predominantly have Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, and what she started doing with her staff is have people start tracking the metaphors that people use in the stories that they tell. So at least they're getting more in rapport with the residents. At least there's more sense of connection and and she said it's been really wonderful because there's been much more a sense of entering into the other person's world and more sort of insight for families and staff so I think that's very exciting and and there's there's been a fair amount of research in the language of Alzheimer's but I'm very excited about learning more about it and where the intersections might be another book to come (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I think, yeah. At least, at least more work to do, if nothing else. Yeah. That's true. So there, those are two of the things that you discovered in your research: the terminal lucidity and the conversations with deceased loved ones. And then there is a third: it is sustained narrative, which I found quite interesting. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes, um, that was something else that thought made me really think. Oh, there's something going on that looks to me like consciousness. <laughs> Um, a sustained narrative is I found examples, and several, many of them actually, of let's say someone who's dying, and, and let's say on December 1st, they start talking in this sort of symbolic language about the train. Yeah, the train is getting ready, having some functional problems, but the train is getting ready, December 1st. Then December 4th, excuse me, 4th, the person might say, yeah, I think the train is getting fixed up now and there's a little less wreckage to the interior. And then December 7th, they start talking again about this 
you know, what would seem like nonsense is trained. Anyway, over a course of days or even weeks, there'll be this story or narrative that unfolds. And oftentimes it's about the journey, but it can be other things as well about people in the room. And to me, it's remarkable that someone could sustain this narrative and remember this storyline over days or weeks. How does that happen? I mean, I can't remember what I told someone three days ago, right? I, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? I can't track, track that. So there's this tracking process of this sustained narrative, and it usually evolves in a way, and oftentimes the evolution of those narratives, um, they also occur in the, the dreams of the dying, but there are um, these narratives, these stories that, that often come to some kind of resolution, like, okay, train is getting closer now, train is getting closer to the destination or something like that. So you'll see an evolution of these narratives, and I call those sustained narratives because they continue over time in a way that seems remarkable considering the person's brain, by all accounts, should not be working very well anymore, right? By all mm, accounts, if right. they're dying, just like other parts of the body, it should be it should be dysfunctional and not working when in actuality because of all the dream-like symbols and the sustaining of this narrative, it looks to me like like there's a very active brain going <laughs> before us, and um, and that to me can only be a sign of consciousness. And and I, I think that's true. In the past, this nonsensical language has been attributed to the normal process that the brain goes through when we're dying. That was how science explained it. Your research. Right along with many of us who believe there is another side, and I mean, I firmly believe that, has brought to light that this is not just the brain fading out, but, and this is just me talking, to me, if you look at China, when a baby is born in China, people cry. When people pass away in China, people have a party because they believe they're going someplace better. Now, I look at that and I think when you're being birthed, you're in a tunnel, you're in the vagina, you're coming out, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Okay, when you're dying, there's a tunnel. You're coming out, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Everybody says, I see the light, I see the light. I believe you're, being, you're, you're birthing, if you will, into a new realm. Yes, yes. It I, just I makes love, sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when you say that, it makes sense to me in so many ways. First of all, I've interviewed a lot of nurses, and I've heard so many of them say the feeling in a room where a woman has just given birth or is giving birth is so similar to the feeling of a room where someone is dying. There's this feeling of the portal opening, and I have to say that I had the very same feeling. My father's passing, of course I was grief-stricken, of course, but I also felt that this portal opened, and frankly, I felt like the door opened in a way that was with me for the five years of doing this research. And it's only in the last few months I felt the door totally close. I had felt that through this final words research where I wrote down everything my father said and really entered into this other reality with him because I do did experience another reality. And when he pointed to the angels in the corner of the room, and remember this is a man who didn't believe in angels, when he spoke mm-hmm. about those angels, I really felt their presence because I was so connected to my father and partly because I was writing all this down. And I really felt that the portal opened, and and through that portal open, it led me um, to this Final Words project and doing this research and and 
hearing the stories of how so many other people have experienced their loved ones passing, not just as something that is deeply sorrowful, but also in many ways powerfully, again, using the word uplifting, or at least deeply sacred, right? At least deeply sacred, if nothing else. Yes, and that's at the very least. It is more than deeply sacred. It, yeah, yes. absolutely. It, it uh, oh, yeah, there's just, it, you have to read this book. I, I, I think everybody should have to read this book, first of all. It should be mandated <laughs> because it does help you regardless of where you are in your own life. If you've never experienced anyone passing away, um, I think the, you know, when my husband's sister passed away, really the only other person who had passed away was his mother and father. They were not accustomed to death at all, not at all, whereas I had been, you know, through it a number of times. And it's not that you get used to it, but, you know, it's not your first rodeo. So, you know, you're like, okay, I know what's happening, you know. So I I thought it was really great that you included the afterlife stories because I think that helps to validate the final words project in that there is communication from the other side, and it does start prior to our departure if, in fact, it hasn't started earlier on your journey in this life. And for some of us, it does start earlier. We do. I, I get senses. I get feelings. I see things. I, there's a lot that goes on. I don't say that I'm a, a medium or a psychic, but I do know that I get a lot of hits, and I know exactly where they're coming from, and I can tell when I'm in that, in that space. You just know. So... I think that including those afterlife stories, I was so glad you did that. It was a surprise when it, cause I didn't start at the back of the book and look it up. I just, you know, I just was reading and I was like, Oh good. She's doing finals. I like this, you know, because it I'm really glad. did. Yeah. Validate I, everything else. So that was I'm good. I'm so glad, you know, and I saw this kind of continuum. I mean, what I saw was this continuum where we start with telepathic language or um, as babies and and young ones, and we're very energetically in tune from the research I've heard from other from people who've done work with toddlers and and infants, and then we go through this continuum of you know evolving literal language and so on and so forth, and then at the end, what really became clear to me is we seem to re-enter as people die. Suddenly, communication comes in a number of ways, and among those are telepathic. Um, communications or synchronicities, but when I heard those afterlife stories from people, and as I said in the book, I hadn't ever, I had not anticipated that I would be writing that chapter, but it was such an organic evolution as I study this language, and people who track the language of their loved ones would then contact me weeks, months later and say, you won't believe this. There was this bird who came to my window and sat at my window for an hour and a half and looked at me, I knew it was my mother. You know what I mean? Or or I got mm-hmm. a text message while my loved one was dying saying the taxi is waiting to take you away or things like that. So I And then with me what happened is um, a few weeks after my father died, I heard his voice reciting a beautiful poem from my mother. And yep. Um, and I just let it, you know, suspended any disbelief, and the poems were beautiful, and it turned out 38 poems came from my father to my mother, and they're beautiful, and they gave her so much comfort. So the part of me that's the analyzer and the skeptic, that little bit still left, I can say, well, even if it was my imagination, it, it, the result was comfort and, and love, and the part of me that is, not a skeptic anymore. It was like, Papa, 
Papa was there, you know. Yeah. Papa came through, and and the stories from people. One story was from a guy who's a professor, and I think it was uh, biology of form. He taught at the school of pharmacology, but you know, complete skeptic. And he had these experience when he did a job just to get through school in a morgue that completely convinced him um, in the existence of spirit. So. You know, and and I had that another experience that I hear is is, is common. Um, Raymond Moody coined the term shared death experience, and William Peters in in Santa Barbara has been doing a lot of work through his shared crossings project. But I had a shared death experience with my father, where I was living in Napa, California, and he was in Berkeley, California, about 70 miles, I think, about an hour or so away. And I woke up at 3.15 in the morning, and just what you had talked about, that kind of crowded feeling was in the room. It mm-hmm. was, I, I was like, I, I, was, I just felt like there were presences in the room. And I looked again at the clock, so it was 3.15, and I said to my husband, God, I wonder if my dad's dying right now, if he's passing, because I feel something in the room. It feels so thick. And then it was as if I saw a swirling in the air, and I looked around me, and I just knew something was happening uh, that felt that had a, a, a real presence to it. And the next day, I um, and again it was 3:15. I saw the you know the red digital letters uh, numbers flashing. And the next day, I um, asked my mom, "So how's Dad doing? You know, how's everything?" And she said the strangest thing happened at 3:15 in the morning. Your dad woke up and started talking about all the people in the room and how we just didn't have enough time to talk to them all. And I thought, wow, mm-hmm. that was that. You know, at the time, I didn't know the term shared death experience, but I came to understand that while our loved ones are dying, oftentimes we can have these synchronous experiences, and then after they die, those kinds of experiences can continue. You can have them even when they're not dying. I've had it with friends. Right. One woman sat at a, I, was, I was giving a concert, and she started talking and said, you know, I had a dream last night. She started telling me about it, and I said, stop. And she looked at me, and I finished the dream. And she said, how do you oh. know that? I said, that was my dream. And she goes, no, it was my dream. I said, you busted in on my dream. And she goes, <laughs> I must have. Well, she had come to me a number of times for energy therapy. And I have to say, once you come in for energy therapy, our, our energy is connected. Now, I'm connected with everyone on the planet just like everyone else is, but more so once I've been in your energy field. So these things can happen. And interestingly, last year, January of 2016, we had one snowstorm here in uh, New Jersey and it was a Sunday and I went out and shoveled the walkway and I'm shoveling and I'm feeling like not great and I thought I know it isn't me somebody's having a heart attack and they're not going to make it oh. somebody is not oh, going to make it Something's going on, not going to make it and I continued to do my work you know and and somebody told me that was really stupid it could have been you I said no it wasn't me I knew it wasn't me and they were like tea and I said I know but I swear to god it wasn't me and it wasn't that night at 9 30 um, a member of my family called and told me oh. that my father had you know, he was going into the hospital. And um, I was lucky I got the phone call because we're estranged. So, you know, it was, um, but, uh, but we're connected. And interestingly enough, two days later, I got a call and it was like, well, you know, um, our father is still, you know, here. Uh, we don't understand it. Everybody was in the room. We all said our goodbyes. Uh, and we thought that he'd pass over in the night. And in my head, I thought, well, not everybody was there because I wasn't allowed to be. You know, I wasn't allowed to go to the wake or anything because it was a family matter. That's fine. Do that if you want. So I could do my own thing. But you can't tell me that we're not connected. You can't. Because I knew it when it was happening. I knew it was someone. And when that phone rang at 930, I looked at it and went, and here we go. 
And I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. So it does happen when they're transitioning, but it also happens just if somebody wants, you know, if you're connected. There's some way that you're connected. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel it, you know. How did you know? Because I'm so intrigued by all of this. Because now that I I have definitely become more intuitive as I did this research, it was oh yeah, like, you're as, going yeah and I yeah and it's been it's been it's just you know in a very practical way it's really helpful like I'm not going to take that road take the other one because it's too much tra- I mean it's been really right. a gift to, to develop my intuition and I'm just so intrigued so I ha- I'm just so curious when you said it was not you how did you know that I mean I mean how did you know the difference between what was you and what was not you? How did you know I that? Think, I think, well, I've always been somewhat intuitive, okay? And just like going to the gym and, and flexing any muscle, you can make it work better for you. So I'm constantly using my intuition. And I did stand up from shoveling, and I did think, okay, is this me or is this somebody else? And I got to know it's not you. And I was like, okay, it's somebody else. Who is this? And I wouldn't get the answer to that. And that was okay that I didn't get that answer. But I did know it wasn't me. So it was just a knowing. I, I really don't have any other way to explain it except to ask the questions. Is this me? And, and hear that voice. And is it somebody else? Yes. Who is this? And well, you're not going to get that. It's yes or no questions. All right. Will I learn soon? Yes. Okay. Should I keep shoveling? Yes. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a process of elimination and, and, and doing that, working with your intuition. And anybody can do it. Everybody thinks, oh, you're gifted. It's like, no, we're all gifted. Just start using your gifts. Find them and use them. It's real easy. Find them and use them. Find yeah. them and use them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And do you, I'm just so curious because um, you're so direct and grounded when you talk about your experiences and your mapping of the world. So I'm really curious. Do you think that it's just that the unseen is all around us and we just don't perceive it? Or is there yes. – yeah. I do. I think that we can't perceive it because we're not using all the senses that we're given. We only yes. know the five. And so here we are in a you know, three-dimensional world with five senses, and this is what we're using. But there's much more than that, and we just need to know how to use it. That's why some of these people who are such good mediums, when they, have, um, they do brain scans, they can see different parts of the brain light up than other people. Yeah. And they light up in a much, a much bigger way, and they see, okay, now they're, they're, getting, they're communicating because – the other thing is to bring the spirituality into it, which is a part of quantum physics, and it takes a lot for people to understand that. It's not science. It's like, oh, but it is, my dear. <laughs> you know, it really mm-hmm. is. That if you think about we're all connected, we all come from the same source. Therefore, we all have a piece of source within us. And so if we're all connected and we're all from the same source, we're all going to feel the same things and we're all going to be able to read each other, whether it's telepathically or not. This is just the dimension we chose to come and learn and grow in. But when you pass over or rebirth into that new realm, it's going to be different. And that's in your book. It's been validated in your book. Yeah, because I'm reading the book going, I knew I was right. I knew I was right. Damn, I was right. You know, (laughs) that's why I love your book, you know, validated things Uh, for me. (laughs) uh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well, you know, the most startling or some of the most startling research that I read was Kenneth Ring's research with people who uh, were blind or the majority of them were born blind. And when they have near-death experiences, and this is just what you were talking about, those extra senses that we have, and when they would have near-death experiences and leave their body, people who are blind 
could see and they and and they could describe there were examples of people who could describe the patterns on the doctor's tie right that they could yeah. have never seen before so um i i mean after reading those kinds of things and then hearing the kinds of things i heard in the final words project you know i had to change my ideas and, and my thoughts about things which was wonderful but it's been really an exciting thing and it's really a gift to hear you because you've really worked even more so in in this field so it's exciting to hear hear your experience. well i think that too when i talk about energy i'm actually energy is consciousness that's what it is so we're yes. talking about the same thing it's energy it's consciousness right. it's the exact same thing and you can manipulate yeah. it and you can shift it and it's pliable and flexible and that's why with focused intent you can make tumors go away that's why you can heal your body people introduce me and say you're a healer oh here's t love she's a healer i'm like no i'm not I never healed anybody but myself. I'm a facilitator of energy, but I, I, I heal myself just like we all do, but I'm a facilitator of energy. And you can shift things and make things happen very, very quickly, very quickly. And people don't believe it until they are part of it and then they get it. But, uh, oh, my goodness, we're almost at the top of the hour. Oh, Lisa, I, this is such a great conversation. I love it. But I wanted to end with a, a quote that was in your book, if I may. And I think this kind of sums things up almost beautifully. Um, the words of Stephen Jones of the Hospice of Saint Barbara, Santa Barbara, yeah. the dying need us to be exceptional listeners in order to be understood. The language of the dying is comprehended best when taken in through the gill of our hearts. Yeah. Each syllable is sacred and should be received as a gift. That's just beautiful. I loved that. And uh. With that, I want to thank you. Uh, and and but before we go, I'd like to tell our listeners, please, how they can learn more about you, where they can purchase your book. I know that your website is finalwordsproject.org, but tell us how they can get a hold of your book and learn more. Ah, thank you. Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, most online outlets and many bookstores throughout the country have it now, or you could go in and ask for it and um, order it that way. And also... Um, FinalWordsProject.org. You can email me, and I'll send you a copy directly. And New World Library, my publisher, wonderful yeah. publisher, also has. Yes, copies. they are. Yeah, they are. And this is a great, great book. And I have to say, this is a book that could be gifted to someone because it would help someone who is is grieving, any any of the bereaved. It would help them. It truly would because they'll be able to to feel a connection. I'm quite sure. So think about that. You know, I mean, I know it's we're coming into June. There were no holidays, but get it now, and you'll have it that shopping done out of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so listeners. <laughs> You're welcome. So listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. Also, check out my charitable organization for kids, Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every penny 
of every dollar donated goes directly to children in need. We're run solely by volunteers. There are no salaries or stipends or compensation of any kind to anyone. We are Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, and we believe by investing in a brighter tomorrow, we are giving them a better today. So thank you for taking time to visit our website, SojiHuggles.org. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember to follow us on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio and at Soji Huggles. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.